This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I pray uh, for those of us this morning whose hearts feel chaotic like the wilderness and dry like a desert. Pray that your waters would break forth by the power of your spirit and that you would strengthen their hearts. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that we will see the glory of the Lord, that we will see the glory of Jesus as we submit ourselves to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the third Sunday of the season of Advent. And the past two Sundays, Jess and Jonathan have helped us to reflect on several classic Advent themes, like judgment and repentance and preparation. And this morning, I want to explore another very important Advent theme, but one that we don't talk about probably enough. And that theme is doubt. The season of Advent is a season for doubt. And before you think I'm somehow encouraging doubt, let me explain what I mean. When I say Advent is a season for doubt, what I mean is that Advent is a time for us to be honest. It's a time where God invites us to inventory our lives and to be honest about our struggles and about our questions and about the doubts that we might have. Advent is a season for doubt. And it's not because doubt is a good thing. Believe me, it's not. Doubt isn't a good thing, but it's real. Doubt is real, and it's not helpful to pretend that we have it all together when we actually don't. Having it all together isn't one of the things that Jesus requires of us. Thank God. Doubt is a part of the Christian life. I wish it wasn't, but it is. And it doesn't do us any good if we hide the fact that sometimes we wonder if all of this is true. Sometimes we question whether God really knows what's going on around here. And if he does know what's going on, sometimes we wonder if he actually cares. In a world like ours, a little doubt from time to time actually seems like the sane response to some of the things that we experience. When cancer eats our bodies, when spiritual leaders abuse, when gunmen kill grandmas buying their groceries, when totally random accidents happen, when our careers don't work out like we hoped they would, when we're frustrated with our romantic situation, when for a thousand different reasons, God feels far and we feel lost. It's hard not to wonder sometimes how the promises of God square with our present experience. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. In the Gospel of Matthew, those were Jesus's first words of his public ministry. And the church has held on to this promise for over 2,000 years. But sometimes, near feels pretty far, doesn't it? And when near feels pretty far, The very Advent question from Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, can become, are you even there, O Lord? 
Do you even exist? Advent is the time for asking these kinds of hard questions. We have permission to do that. Advent is the season for it because, and, and uh, Fleming Rutledge in her book, her great book on Advent, explains why this is the season for this kind of thing. Of all the seasons of the church year, she says Advent most closely mirrors our daily lives. And this is because the church lives its life in what she calls the time between. The time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In a very real sense, she writes, the church lives in Advent all the time. And for this reason, Rutledge says that Advent can actually help us find our footing in this time between. And it can help us find our footing because Advent guides us through life's most challenging questions. It helps us to look into the darkness without getting lost in it. And most importantly, Advent anchors us in the hope that Christ really will come again. If we do it right, Advent gives us space. It gives us the space to face our doubts in faith. And so with all of this in mind, we're going to spend some time with John the Baptist and Jesus this morning, and we're going to learn how to doubt. We're going to learn how to doubt in faith. And as we look at Matthew chapter 11, the very first thing that I want us to notice this morning is just how profoundly different John appears compared to how he was described last week in the chapter that Father Jonathan preached on in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, we saw John the Baptist at the top of his game, at the height of his power. I like to describe prophets as disturbed people who disturb people, and John is the quintessential prophet. He's clearly a very disturbed man. He's out in the wild. He wears strange clothes. He eats bugs and honey. And John clearly disturbs people, and I think he likes doing it. He says some pretty wild stuff. Basically, in chapter 3, his message is turn or burn, with some creative name-calling thrown in. In Matthew chapter 3, John is loud, and he's proud, and he calls all people to repent or face the judgment of Messiah Jesus, a Messiah that he describes as a man of power and a man of fire, and even a man of violence. In Matthew chapter 3, John's message was an exclamation point. But in Matthew chapter 11, his message has become a question mark. John goes from boldly proclaiming, the one who comes after me is more powerful than me, to quietly asking in Matthew 11 verse 2, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? The difference between the passages is so stark, it's almost like this is two different people. Like this is two different prophets. So what in the world happened to John between Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew 11? Well, I think two things happened. First, John discovered that his expectations about Jesus were completely off. And I think verse 12 gives us a glimpse into this. John was a man born into a world of violence. God's people were violently oppressed by the might of Rome the kingdom suffered violence. And John was expecting Jesus the Messiah to take the kingdom by force, to conquer Jerusalem and then Rome and then the entire world by the sword. 
But instead of storming Jerusalem with a great army, John sees and he hears about Jesus roaming the backwaters of Galilee, healing some people, teaching some people. John expected Jesus to wield an axe, but as commentator Frederick Buhner points out, what Jesus did and taught seemed more calculated to put axes in the hands of Jesus' opponents than in the hands of his disciples. This was not the revolution that John was expecting, and so he was deflated. And the second thing that happened to John, as verse 2 tells us, is John got himself thrown into prison. John was in prison because he continued to disturb people because he was a prophet, and he ended up disturbing the wrong guy. He spoke the truth to power one too many times, and it got him arrested. Later on in the gospel in Matthew chapter 14, uh, we read why John was in prison. John was in prison because he called out King Herod for sleeping with his sister-in-law. And Herod threw him into jail. And I suspect this was the thing that broke the prophet's back. And the reason I say that is because of who Herod is. Herod is a Jew. He's a Jew serving as Rome's puppet king ruling over the region. And so that means that Herod was the face of the enemy. He was the poster child of what was wrong with the world. He was the embodiment of evil that John expected Jesus to chop down with his axe. In Matthew chapter 3, John boldly proclaimed that God's judgment was imminent. It was right around the corner. The Messiah's axe was already at the root of every evil tree. And in Matthew chapter 11, John finds himself in prison with the cold, sharp blade of that axe pressed up against his neck. Knowing this gives us a sense of just how disoriented and how discouraged John would have been. Things weren't playing out for John as he was expecting. And so John does what I imagine every single one of us would have done. John doubts. He begins to question everything he once believed and very publicly said about this Jesus. Now, it's worth pointing out here that many theologians throughout church history have had a hard time believing that somebody like John the Baptist could doubt. They're very uncomfortable with this idea. And so they read this passage as John sending his disciples to Jesus, not because John doubts, but because they do, and he thinks their faith needs to be strengthened. And I suppose the assumption behind this line of thinking is that saints can't doubt. But I don't think that's true. What I think we're witnessing in this scene is a very great man of faith experiencing serious and profound doubt. And I don't think we need to be embarrassed about that. I actually think we should find this to be profoundly encouraging. If someone as great as John can doubt, then there's hope for somebody like me who doubts. I'm not a total failure. You see, a saint isn't someone who never doubts. A saint is someone who learns how to deal with their doubt in the right way. I love how Alfred Tennyson puts it in his poem, In Memoriam. He writes, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. Just as someone can recite the creeds and not believe a single word that they're saying, faith and doubt can live together. A saint isn't someone who never doubts, 
A saint is someone who learns how to deal with their doubts in the right way. And John the Baptist shows us how to do that. He shows us what it looks like. So let's take a closer look at how he does this. Well, the first thing I want us to see about John is that he refuses to pretend that all is well when all is not well. John isn't a faker. He's not a pretender. John is an honest man. And he doesn't hide his doubts. He doesn't hide his doubts from his closest friends, his followers. And he doesn't hide his doubts from Jesus. He's not content to live a lie. And so John asks the hard questions, the questions that he has. He seeks the truth. And I want us to really appreciate what we're witnessing here as we see John do this. Just think about who John the Baptist is. Think about the things that he did and the things that he said to prepare the way for Jesus. It's hard to imagine the humility it would have required to share his doubts with his followers and with Jesus. It's even harder to imagine the courage that this would have required. Somewhere along the way, John has stopped being sure about Jesus. But he still goes to Jesus with his questions. Faith and doubt live together. John displays tremendous doubt in the midst of faith. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. John has a lot to teach us here about how to doubt in faith. And Jesus also has a lot to teach us here. In this interaction, Jesus teaches us how to be hospitable towards those who doubt, hospitable towards those with serious questions. So we'll look at how Jesus responds to John's question here. And the first thing I want us to see about Jesus is actually what he doesn't do. Jesus doesn't get angry at John. He doesn't rebuke John for the question. He doesn't cancel him. Instead, he responds to John's question with kindness and with compassion. In verse 4, Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus is trying to strengthen the heart of John. And to do this, he points to things that he's said and to the things he's done, his words and his works. And to do that, he paraphrases a prophecy about the coming Messiah from Isaiah 35. And as a prophet himself, John would have been steeped in these kinds of prophecies, these prophecies about the coming Messiah. Jesus is speaking John's language here. It's like he's saying, look at the scriptures, John. Consider what you've seen and heard about me. The prophecies really are coming true. Does this answer your question? And then in verse 6, Jesus adds this really interesting line, which isn't a quote from Isaiah. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Well, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, Frederick Bruner unpacks what he means in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. He writes this. He says, these are kind words. These are kind words by Jesus. Jesus does not shame John by saying something like, blessed is the person who never doubts that I am the Messiah. Instead, he says, God bless you, John. If you don't quit, 
even though I'm a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. I think we're seeing Jesus at his best here. He doesn't demote John because God's megaphone has become a faint whisper. He does the opposite. Jesus praises John. In verse 11, Jesus basically says that John is the greatest human being who's ever lived. I think this shows us that Jesus isn't embarrassed by doubt. He's not ashamed of us when we have profound questions. And tells us that doubts don't have to be obstacles to our faith. They can actually be opportunities for us to grow. As we see with John, our doubts are precisely the places where Jesus wants to meet us. Jesus actually wants to meet us right in the middle of our doubts. Now, with that being said, I think I ought to warn you about something. When Jesus meets us in our doubts, the encounter doesn't always go as we might expect it will. And Matthew 11 is a case in point. I don't want it to be lost on us that Jesus doesn't really answer John's question, at least not in a straightforward way. Right? John asks a simple yes or no question, and in classic Jesus style, he tells the truth, but he tells it slant, as Emily Dickinson says. Jesus says, take a second look at Isaiah 35 and tell me what you think, John. Jesus gently meets John in the midst of his doubt, but he's clearly not interested in simply answering his question. He also wants to correct John. And I think that's what the line about not being offended is all about. It's actually a very important line. John's expectations of the Messiah don't align with the real Messiah. And so Jesus becomes what C.S. Lewis calls the great iconoclast. The great iconoclast. The destroyer of false images. Lewis says that in the incarnation, when the real Messiah comes, he leaves all previous ideas and expectations of the Messiah in ruins. And this kind of correction is kind of violent for the things that we believe. It's hard, but it's also really good. It's really good because nothing is more important than knowing the truth about Jesus. And sometimes the only way to the truth is through our doubts. If we engage our doubts in faith, they don't take us away from Jesus. They can actually bring us right to him, to the real Jesus. And this is what I think the season of Advent is for. Facing our doubts in faith so we can encounter the real Christ. The Christ who came and the Christ who is really coming again. And I think there's an invitation for each one of us here this morning from this passage. For those of us who doubt, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're in good company. You're in the company of John the Baptist. For those of us who doubt, the invitation is to be like John, to be like John the Baptist. Don't hide your questions. Ask them. In humility and with courage, share your doubts with God. Share your doubts with somebody that you trust. And there are a lot of ways that you can do this. Maybe it's during a time of personal prayer. Maybe it's as we're praying together this Sunday morning. Maybe you can receive prayer during communion. And you could share with your friend over a cup of coffee the questions that you have. 
Or you could share in your community group or with a mentor or with a counselor, even with a pastor. If you have doubts, be like John the Baptist. That's the invitation. And for those of us who are privileged enough to be entrusted with somebody's questions, with somebody's nagging doubts, please, please, please be like Jesus. Don't be scared by their doubts. Don't shame them. Listen to them. Hear their doubts. Listen to their questions. And resist the temptation to offer trite platitudes that I promise you, no matter how nice they sound, will be insufficient to their questions. It's not your job to fix them. It's not your job to resolve all of their doubts and to answer all of their questions. If somebody comes to you with their doubts, you have one job, to bring them to Jesus, to point them to Jesus, to point them to his words and to his works, to bring them to Jesus in prayer. And when we do this, when we share our doubts with one another, and when we point one another to Jesus, I am confident that Jesus will meet us there. The real Jesus will meet us, not the one of our imaginations. And as we encounter the real Jesus, not despite our doubts, but through our doubts, Jesus will help us find our footing in this time between. And when Christ meets us, I think he might look a bit different than we were expecting. But blessed is the one who takes no offense at him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, we can be imperfect, uh, that we can have questions, and that we can have doubts, and that you are not embarrassed by us, you're not ashamed of us, but that you welcome us and you show hospitality to us. And I pray that you would help us who doubt to be like John the Baptist and uh, those of us uh, who uh, are entrusted with uh, the things that we're struggling with. Lord, help us to be a hospitable community, kind and compassionate, and pointing one another to Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.